Well, that was great. If you wonder, what, what was that about? And that was uh, residual effects from the men's retreat this weekend. Uh, Dr. Wayne Mack came and just taught some great things to the men from the Word of God and exhorted us and encouraged us and challenged us and give us some practical things to do so we can be better husbands, better Christians, better representatives of Christ in the world. And it was really a great time. And so this morning, I'm not going to be having you open your Bibles, Dr. Mack is. And uh, having been here the first service and listened to him, you are in for a real treat. And uh, just so you know a little bit about him, he travels around the world and his specialty is biblical counseling. He's been one of the forerunners in that field for many years. And uh, he is uh, back in Pennsylvania and uh, yet uh, is here in the wintertime and the summertime teaching at the Master's College. And that is why he's here at this time year here in Southern California, which he doesn't mind because it's warm here and uh, he likes the temperature uh, better than Pennsylvania at this time of year. And so Dr. Mack, why don't you come up and preach the word? Okay. Good. Yeah, we uh, talked to some folks back in on the East Coast and they asked us to bottle some of the heat and uh, bring it back with them. <laughs> I said, our suitcases are already too much, too filled, so we can't do that. But uh, uh, we're uh, wishing that we could hang around a little longer because it's still cold back there. But it's, we're having a, a warming period back there. It's only 32 degrees today. <laughs> well, it's a joy to uh, be with you. And to have the opportunity to open the word to you. I had that privilege on Friday evening and then all day Saturday. And the guys uh, sat there and listened to me. And we had a great Q&A session at the end of all that. And people often ask me when I go to go places to preach or teach, well, how did it go? And I say, well, I really enjoyed it. And I benefited from it. But you'll have to ask the people who were there whether they think the same way. But as I say, it's a privilege to minister. And I want to uh, have you open your Bibles with me. Primarily, we're going to be uh, looking at a passage in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And in particular, in that whole passage, we're going to focus in on uh, verse 5. Now, verse 3 of Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has given to us as Christians, Paul says, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. These are heavenly blessings, but we enjoy them here on earth. And then he proceeds to tell us about some of those blessings. And all of the blessings that God gives to us as his children are wonderful. They ought to get us excited. Paul was excited. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he couldn't think about these blessings without getting excited. And if we understand what these blessings are and are gripped by them, we'll be excited about it as well and thankful. Now, in the passage, Paul says that God has blessed us in that we have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. That's verse 4. And it's a wonderful thing to know that 
We have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. It's a wonderful thing, as he states in verse 6, King James Version, to know that we've been accepted in the beloved. That's how King James puts verse 6. We've been accepted in the beloved. It's a wonderful thing to know, as verse 7 says, we've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been set free through the blood of Jesus Christ from the control of our sins as well as from the penalty and power of our sins. It's a wonderful thing, as verse 7 goes on, uh, to tell us that we have been forgiven of our sins. And that there is therefore now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Verses 8 and 9 tell us that God has lavished. I love that word, lavished. He's lavished upon us all wisdom and insight. And he's made known to us the mystery of his will. And what a wonderful thing for God to make known to us the mystery of his will and lavish upon us wisdom and insight, the very insight and wisdom of God. It's a wonderful thing, as verse 11 states, that we have obtained an inheritance. We have an inheritance that is incredible, and God considers us to be his inheritance also. And then in verses 13 and 14, He tells us that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And it's a wonderful thing to know that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. But of all these blessings in this whole passage, the one that gets me most excited and in a sense is most precious to me is the one that is found in verse 5, where he says that he has predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. In a sense... Being adopted as sons of God goes way beyond any of these other blessings that he's bestowed upon us. And I'll tell you why I think that in a little while. Here Paul says that if you have truly repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ has adopted you into his family. And you've been adopted into the best family, the most important family in the world. You have not only been justified... Forgiven, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you've not only received eternal life, but you've been adopted into the very family of God. Paul says that no person who has come to Christ should ever think of himself as an orphan. He should think of himself as one who is part of a family. No person who has come to Christ should ever forget the fact that he has the best of fathers He has the best of brothers. Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. Now, I might be ashamed to call somebody a, a brother, and you might be ashamed to call me a brother. But Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. That's amazing. And then we have the best of families because 1 Timothy 3.15 says we've been adopted into the family of God. Every person who has come to Christ has been incredibly blessed with every spiritual blessing. And these blessings are heavily. They are out of this world. You know, the message that I'm bringing to you, I've titled, In This World, It Doesn't Get Any Better. It doesn't get any better than the fact that we have been adopted by God into his family. Well, what does it mean to be adopted? The Greek word means to place as a son. 
To give someone who doesn't naturally deserve the place of a son, the place of a son. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, in the Roman world, adoption was an honored custom that gave special dignity and family membership to those who were not born into a family. Often, a wealthy, childless man would adopt a young slave who would trade his slavery for sonship with all of its concomitant privileges. In general, that's what it means that God has adopted us. But let's become more specific. To be adopted into the family of God means that when we become Christians, we're transferred from one family into another family. Prior to becoming Christians, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 2 and 3, that we were children of disobedience, that we were children of wrath. And in 1 John 3 and verse 10, John says that before we become Christians, we are children of the devil. And John 8, 44 tells us that before we become Christians, Satan was our father. And Matthew 13, 38 says that before we become Christians, we're sons of the evil one. But when we become Christians, Ephesians 1, 5 tells us that even though we were children of wrath, children of disobedience, children of the devil, God adopted us and he transferred us out of the family of Satan into his very own family. So one thing it means is that we have been transferred from the family of Satan into the family of God. Secondly, when Paul mentions this matter of adoption, he is informing us that God was under no legal or natural obligation to adopt us. Now, I know of some cases where people were adopted into a certain family because the people who adopted them felt obligated to do so. That's the case where you have an uncle or an aunt or a grandmother or a grandfather who adopt a child because the biological parents have abdicated their responsibilities or in some cases the biological parents have died. That happened with my mother. My mother's mother died at the time of her birth and so my mother was immediately adopted by her grandmother and grandfather. They felt obligated to do it. If they had had their druthers, they would have rather had her be raised by her own mother and father. But a mother was not available to do that. So her grandmother and grandfather adopted her. However, in most cases, adoption is not done because somebody is obligated to do it. In most cases, people do not adopt a child out of obligation. They, uh, ch- they adopt a child because they choose to do it. In our biological family, we have several relatives who have adopted children, and in every case, they did it voluntarily. They did it because they wanted to. A mother could not become pregnant, and so they wanted children, so they adopted. In one case, they adopted two children from Korea. In another case, they adopted two children from the United States. In the third case, they adopted one from the United States, and then my sister got pregnant, and they had a daughter by natural childbirth. Now, in some ways, God's adoption of us is similar to what happens when most people adopt children, in that he doesn't adopt us because he's under obligation to do so. Romans 11 and verse 5 says he adopts us by grace. It's because he's gracious that he adopts us. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 says our adoption is to the praise of the glory of his grace. 
Luke 12, 32 says he adopts us because of his good pleasure. It just pleases him to adopt us, and so he adopts us. So in this respect, God's adoption is similar, but in many other respects, his reasons for adopting us are quite different. People adopt children for a number of different reasons. In the past, people sometimes adopted children for economic reasons. You know, back in past history in the United States of America and other parts of the world, most people were farmers. In fact, sociologists tell us that at one time it took nine working people to provide enough food for ten people. Which meant that for every physician, for every shoemaker or whatever who wasn't working on the farm, you needed nine people who would work on the farm to make enough food for that extra guy who didn't work on the farm. And so people would adopt children because they would help to produce more food. Some people adopt because they want to pass on the family name. We're the end of the line. We want somebody to pass on our family name. Some people adopt because they want someone to take care of them in old age. You know, we're going to get old, and in the past they didn't have Social Security, they didn't have pensions, retirement funds, and all that. And so it was the responsibility of children to take care of their parents. But if you didn't have any children, what would happen to you when you became older? Some children adopt, parents adopted to gain respect to, uh, because of social pressure. Others expected them to have children. Their parents were saying, you know, we want some grandchildren. And so they were kind of pressured into it as far as adoption is concerned. Some people adopted because they feel emotionally unfulfilled without children. They see all these little bambinos around there and they see these little kids. And wouldn't it be wonderful to have a little child? And and they think that then they'll be emotionally fulfilled. I've heard many women say that, that uh, they wanted to have children so that they could be emotionally fulfilled. Some adopt because they think babies and children are so cute. I mean, they are so cute. Look at the way you dress them up and all of that. I mean, aren't they just lovely? And everybody, you know, a baby's there. Everybody's looking at the baby. Don't pay attention to anybody else. Some adopt because they want someone to love them. Someone to depend on them. Someone to make them feel important. I'm important because my kids really depend on me. And some adopt because they want to make a contribution to society. They're altruistic. And they say, I want to provide for a child because there are many needy and helpless children out there in the world. Somebody has to take care of them. So I'm going to adopt to take care of these helpless and needy children. Now, my friends, God's reasons for adopting us are quite different from most of these reasons that I've mentioned. For one thing, God doesn't adopt us for economic reasons. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. We can't give him anything. He doesn't need anything. God doesn't adopt us because he wants to pass on the family name. He already has a son. And he's a lot better than any of the rest of us to carry on the family name. God doesn't adopt us because he wants someone to take care of him in his old age. He's the eternal God. He never becomes old and decrepit. He's always the same. God doesn't adopt us to gain respect. 
I mean, there isn't any social pressure. Lord, you, you've got to do this because others are forcing you. Well, no, no, no. God doesn't adopt us because of social pressure. He already has all the glory he could ever have. The heavens are declaring his glory. The firmament is showing forth his handiwork. The all creation is a theater that puts God's glory on display. God doesn't adopt us because he feels emotionally unfulfilled. He's already perfectly fulfilled. God doesn't adopt us because he thinks we're so cute. Because there's absolutely nothing about us that would commend us to God or make us attractive or appealing to God. Nor does God adopt us because he wants someone to love him. To depend on him, to make him feel important because there is nothing lacking in God. John Gill, the predecessor to Charles Spurgeon at the Park Street Baptist Church in London, England, said this. He said, civil adoption was allowed of and provided for the relief and comfort of such who had no children. But in spiritual adoption, this reason does not appear. God did not adopt any of the sons of men for one of a son and heir. He had one. And in a higher class of sonship than creatures can be. He is more excellent and divine and suitable to the divine nature. He is his own proper son, begotten of him. He was as one brought up with him and his daily light. The dear son of his love in whom he was well pleased. And who always did the things that were pleasing to him. And who inherited all God's perfections and glory. In civil adoption, there are generally some causes and reasons in the adopted which influence and move the adopter to take the step he does. There are two instances of adoption in scripture. The one of Moses, the other of Esther. In both, there were some things that wrought upon the adopters to do what they did. Moses, the Bible says, was a goodly child exceeding fair and lovely to look upon, which with other things moved the daughter of Pharaoh to take him up out of the water to take care of him and adopt him for her son. Esther was also a fair and beautiful maid. And besides, she was related to Mordecai, which were the reasons why he took her to be his daughter. But in divine adoption, there is nothing in the adopted that could move the adopter to bestow such a favor. No worth, nor worthiness, no love, nor loveliness, nothing attractive in us, children of wrath by nature, transgressors from the womb, rebels against God. There were so many objections to their adoption and so many arguments against it and none for it in themselves that the Lord is represented as making a difficulty of it and saying, how in the world... I'm paraphrasing there, but Jeremiah 3.19 says something like this. How in the world shall I put them among my children? Such sinners as these are. They're so abominable and so disobedient. Enemies in their minds by wicked works, hateful and hating one another. In civil adoption, the adopter, though he takes one into his family and makes him his son and heir and gives him the name and title of a son and a right to an inheritance designed for him. He cannot give him the nature of a son. He can put him in the position of a son, but he can't give him the nature of a son, nor qualifications fitting for the use and enjoyment of the estate he is adopted to. He can't give a suitable disposition and temper of mind, 
nor communicate goodness, wisdom, and prudence for the management of it, he may adopt a fool or a prodigal. But the divine adopter makes his sons partakers of the divine nature and makes them fit for the inheritance with the saints in light. Persons adopted in a civil sense cannot enjoy the inheritance whilst the adoptive father is living, not till after his death. But in spiritual adoption, the adopted enjoy the inheritance, though their father is the everlasting and ever-living God, and Christ the firstborn lives forever with whom they are joint heirs. In some cases, civil adoption might be made null and void, as among the Romans, when against the right of the leader or the government official, but spiritual adoption is never made void on any account. So God's adoption of us is considerably different. It is purely of grace. It is purely undeserved. It is purely unmerited. It is the very opposite of what we deserve. It is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Moreover, when Paul says that God has adopted us, he means that when we become Christians, we become full-fledged members of God's family. In human adoption, when a child is adopted, that child is not adopted as a servant or an employer, employee who has limited privileges or even as a friend. Now, when he is adopted, he is adopted as a family member. He becomes a full-fledged member of the family with all the privileges that go with that status. And so it is with spiritual adoption. Scriptures contain some amazing statements describing what happens when God adopts us. Ephesians 1.5 says, We have been predestined to the adoption as sons. John 1.12 says, When we become Christians, we are given the right to be called the Son of God. Galatians 3.26 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. Galatians 4, 5, and 6 says, Through adoption, we've been made sons of God, and because we are sons, God has sent forth His Spirit into our hearts. Romans 8, 15 through 17 says, You've not received the spirit of slavery again to fear, but the spirit of adoption, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. I love this in John 14, 18, where Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you without a family. And so he says, when we become Christians, he's saying, welcome to the family. And what a wonderful thing it is to be part of God's family. Hebrews 2, 11 and through 13 contains an amazing statement about our adoption. It says, because of our adoption, Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. And he says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. This morning, uh, Pastor Hughes read from Romans chapter 8. Did you catch that in Romans chapter 8? He talks, of course, about God working all things together for good. But verse 29 says that he predestined us to the adoption, uh, to be conformed to the image of his son, that we might, that Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among what? Among many brethren. That's the way God looks on us as brothers of Jesus Christ. That's how Jesus Christ looks on us, as his very own brothers. Every adopted child of God knows that when Christ appears, we're going to appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 4. Every adopted child of God 
can sing, I once was an outcast, stranger on earth, a sinner by choice and an alien by birth. But I've been adopted. My name's written down. I'm an heir to a mansion, a robe and a crown, a tent or a cottage. Why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still I may sing all glory to God. I'm the child of a king. Again, listen to what John Gill had to say about this. He said, adoption is a blessing of grace which exceeds other blessings. It exceeds being redeemed, being pardoned, being justified, being sanctified. Because a man may be redeemed out of a state of slavery by a king's ransom. He may be pardoned by his prince, though he's been a rebel and traitor. He may be acquitted from high crimes laid to his charge and still not be a king's son. If adopted, however, and taken into his family, it must be by another and distinct act of royal favor. And it is more to be a son than to be a saint. It is more to be predestined to the adoption of children than it is to just be chosen and to be destined to be without blame and holy. Angels are saints or holy ones. They're even perfectly holy. But our position and privilege is far above the angels. It's a blessing of grace which makes men exceedingly honorable. There, David observed that it was no light thing to be a king's son-in-law when Saul wanted to take him in as his son-in-law and have him marry his child. David said, oh boy, I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. If David thought it was above him to be the king's son-in-law, it certainly is beyond our imagination that we could be called the son or children of the king of kings. The name of a son of God is a new name, a renowned and excellent one, a name which no man knows the grandeur and dignity of, but he that receives it. It makes a man more honorable than Adam was in his state of honor. We're in a state of honor above that of Adam before sin entered the world. It puts us in a state that's higher than the angels. Since so these are sons, yet they are sons only by creation not by adoption as sons are. That's why I say, hey, when it comes to this matter of adoption, it doesn't get any better in this world to become a true child of God. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Now, because we're adopted as children of God, we have incredible benefits and blessings And we could spend uh, a lot of time talking about all the benefits and blessings which come to us, not because we deserve it, but because God has adopted us by his grace. But I've selected out of a large variety of benefits, a few that I'm going to share with you this morning, a couple of the benefits, I think three of the benefits that God bestows upon us because he's adopted us. First of all, one of the blessings that becomes ours because we've been adopted is that we have the assurance that God will provide for us. First Timothy 5.8 says that if a man does not provide for his own household, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an infidel. In other words, a man is supposed to provide for his own household. And if he doesn't, there's something horribly wrong with him. In 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 14 
Paul says that a father ought to provide for his children. And when I was a boy, I never worried about my next meal. I never worried about where my clothing was going to come from. I never worried whether I was going to have a roof over my head. You know why? I had a father. And my father would take care of me. In our country, it is a crime for which people can be punished, put in jail, if they don't provide for their children, if they don't feed their children and clothe their children properly. You see, it's just expected that parents are going to provide for their children. Well, because of adoption, God is not simply our creator. He's not simply our sovereign. He is our father. Jesus taught us to pray, our father, which art in heaven. Jesus said, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks will receive and everyone who seeks will find and To him who knocks, it will be opened. What father of you is there if his son or children ask for bread, will he give them a serpent? If a son asks for a fish, will he give him a stone? He goes on to say, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more does your father, which is in heaven, know how to give good things to his children? In Matthew 6, 25 through 33, Jesus said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothing. Don't worry about your health. Don't worry about how tall or short you are. And then he gives us a reason why we shouldn't worry. In fact, he gives several reasons why we shouldn't worry. But the most important reason he gives as to why we shouldn't worry is because he says, you have a father. Your father knows. And when you worry and fret, you're acting like you don't have a good father. And so you don't have to worry about all these things because you have a father. Philippians 4.19, Paul says, my God will supply all your needs, not all your wants, but all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that we can sit around and do nothing. And that God's just going to give us whatever we need. It's going to float out there in the air and it's going to end up on our table or whatever. No, that's not what it means. Can't mean that because Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, If a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. And Exodus chapter 20 and verse uh, 6 says that six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. So that's a command not only to rest one day a week. It's a command to work. Six days a week. And in one way or another, we're to be involved in using our energies for productive reasons. But you see, the point is, if we exercise our responsibility in doing what we can, in accepting our responsibilities and working, we can trust God to provide for our needs. He's our father and he will do that. In Genesis 48, when Jacob, a son of God, was dying, he called his son Joseph to him because he had something important to say to him. And this is what he said. 
He reminded Joseph that God had been a shepherd to him all of his life. And to this day, he said, Joseph, my son, I want you to know that God has been a shepherd to me to this point, And he's still a shepherd to me this very day. Now, what was he saying? He was saying his God was the God of Psalm 23. That his God had met his wants and his needs. I, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He has said that God has made me to lie down in green pastures. He's saying God has led me beside the still waters. He's saying God has restored and refreshed and renewed my soul. He's saying God has led me in right paths for his namesake. He's saying that when I went through the valley of the shadow of death, those times of trouble in my life, God was there and his rod and his staff comforted me. He's saying there were enemies all around me, but he prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemy. He's saying that he anointed my head with oil when I got hurt and, you know, I needed some medicine. God came and he looked at the scratches and figuratively he anointed my head with oil. He's saying that God has so blessed me that my cup has run over. He's saying that God's goodness and mercy has followed me all the days of my life. And I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to dwell in the place of God's provision for my entire life and for eternity as well. And what Jacob said, my friends, every believer can say as well. He can count on the fact that if we fulfill our responsibilities, God will provide for us. Now, he's not provided. He's not promised that he's going to provide all of our wants, all of our desires. But he has promised that he would provide all of our needs. If we fulfill our responsibilities, God will take care of his, what he has promised to do. Secondly, another wonderful blessing we have because we've been adopted is that we have the assurance of God's protection. Suppose you were to walk into a neighbor's house and begin to attack his children. What do you think a father would do? Well, if he's any kind of a father, he would rise to defend his children. Well, God is a good father, and he will protect his children. Psalm 121 is a wonderful reminder of how God takes care of us. The psalmist said, my help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. So he's got all the power that he can possibly have to take care of us, to provide for us and to protect us. And this God, who is my father, who made the heaven and earth, will not allow my foot to slip. He can give me steady traction. He who keeps me will not slumber. He never goes to sleep. He never falls off and you know, is oblivious to what's happening around him. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber. He doesn't even snooze, let alone sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. He's right there all the time. The sun will not hurt thee by day. And the moon will not hurt you by night. He's on duty 24 hours a day, 168 days a year. As long as you live, he's going to be there taking care of you. The Lord will protect you from all evil, from anything that would really hurt you. He will keep your soul. 
The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He's our Father. So he is going to protect us. Psalm 91 gives us a number of metaphors which describe the way that God as our Father protects us. It says that God protects us. He shelters us. We dwell in the secret of the Most High under his shadow. It says that God is our refuge. We can run into that refuge. It says that God is a fortress, a fortress that cannot be knocked down. It says that God is our rescuer. He delivers us from snares, from traps. It says that he functions as our physician. He delivers us from the deadly pestilence. It says that he functions in the way that a mother bird who protects her children in the time of danger protects her children. He says that he will cover us with his feathers. It also pictures God as a shield that protects us or as a bulwark, a defensive wall or a breakwater. And so God has committed himself to protect us. Now, this doesn't mean that God will never allow us to experience pain. It doesn't mean that God will never allow us to be abused. It doesn't mean that God will never allow us to suffer or be persecuted. Some fathers think they're doing their children a favor by isolating and protecting them from all difficulties. But not so. Well, God is a loving and wise father, but he is not an indulgent father. He allows us to experience hardships and difficulties... But if he does so, we can be absolutely convinced that he does so because it will ultimately be for our good, for the good of other members of the family and for his glory. He's promised that he's able to work all things together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. Joseph knew that truth. His brothers, of course, sold him into slavery Mrs. Potiphar lied about him. Potiphar was angry and took him to court. And as a result, uh, he was thrown into prison. The cupbearer who said, I'll remember you when I'm delivered, didn't remember him for quite a period of time. And then finally, when Joseph was delivered, he became the prime minister of Egypt. And then his brothers were in need and his brothers came down. And eventually they found out who Joseph was, that Joseph was their brother. And then they remembered all the nasty things they had done to him. And they were afraid. They were thinking of them, and now we're going to get it. And Joseph says to him, hey, guys, you meant it for evil. Okay, what you did was wrong, but God meant it for good. And he said, I really believe that God is using what you did for good, even though it was evil. You see, what kept Joseph from despair, what kept him from depression, what kept him from bitterness, what kept him from anger, what kept him from resentment, what kept him from vengeance, what kept him from retaliation, was the fact that he believed that he had a sovereign and loving God who functioned as a father who was going to work all things together for good on his behalf. And so even later he said to them in Genesis 50 and verse 19, that that, uh, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so uh, Joseph knew that he was being protected by God. He didn't understand at all times why God was allowing that to happen. 
but he knew for sure that his father was watching over him and protecting. We can have that same assurance regardless of what happens to us. If it happens to us, we can claim Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, which says that his thoughts toward us are not thoughts of evil, but of good to bring us to a desired end. Job knew this. And so Job said in Job 23 and verse 10, he knows the way that I take. I may not know the way that I take, and I don't know why all this is happening, but he knows. And when he has tried me, some good's going to come out of it. I will come forth as pure gold. James knew this, and so James says, count it all joy when you encounter various kinds of trials because God is testing you, and God is going to use the trials to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And, of course, Paul knew this when he said, God works all things together for good to them who are called according to his purpose. And so because we are adopted children of God, the terrorists can make threats, Osama bin Laden may try to do what he will. Others may try to destroy us and hurt us. But we will not fear because we have a father. And that father has promised that he will protect us. He will be with us in our goings in and our comings out from this time forth and even forevermore. Well, one more wonderful blessing, which to me is one of the the greatest things of all that we've talked about so far because we're adopted by God God will uh, accept our imperfect services now if you were to come into my office back in Pennsylvania you would see that I have a, a really comfortable desk chair and you would see that I have a, a nice desk there you see my computers two of them sitting there First-class computers. You would see that I have some nice filing cabinets. You would see that I have beautiful bookshelves made for me by a carpenter. You would see there a barrister's case in which I keep my collection of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. That's one of my hobbies to collect old versions of Pilgrim's Progress. I have one that goes all the way back to 1707. It was written in... 1678 and when I retired from the master's college my students got together and they bought me a an old copy of uh, Pilgrim's Progress and I have another uh, a lot of other old copies of Pilgrim's Progress and my children wanted me to have a nice case in which to display them so you'd see that there it's attractive you see nice seats for people to sit on when they come to counsel with me but in my office you'd also see something else you'd see some eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper you know kind of like this with scribbling on it and marks made by a crayon on it and you look at them and you'd say why in the world would wayne mack have those pieces of paper with crayon marks on them displayed right alongside of his thomas kincaid painting why is it there? Well, you know why it's there? It's because these three little girls are my grandchildren. <laughs> and I love them. And they love me. And they drew those. You know, the oldest is four and 
They worked their way on down to one who's four or five months of age. She didn't do any of that, but the other two did. <laughs> and they're imperfect, but I accept them because they're my grandchildren. And you know what? So it is with our Heavenly Father. All of our efforts, everything we do is imperfect. Revelation 7.15 indicates that when we get to heaven, we're going to continually serve him and we're going to perfectly serve him. We'll be totally freed from sin. We will have capacities that we don't presently possess. But right now, my friends, the best of our prayers are imperfect. I've never prayed a perfect prayer. The best of our thoughts are imperfect. The best of our teaching is imperfect. I wish I could teach better than I do. He deserves it. I want to honor him. I want to make people understand how glorious God is and how wonderful Christ is. And I try, but I fail. My service is imperfect. The best of our praises are imperfect. The best of our faith is imperfect. The best of our giving is imperfect. We need to repent of our repentance. It's so imperfect. One old Puritan said, the tear, our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of Christ. Our faith is imperfect. None of us are perfect husbands. None of us are perfect wives. None of us are perfect children. But thank God. God accepts our imperfect services because of Jesus Christ. God doesn't hear us. God doesn't use us because our service is perfect. No, he does it because we're his children. And we're united to his perfect son. In Philippians 4.18, Paul said the Philippians had offered to God a sacrifice that was acceptable and well-pleasing to God. Well, why was this acceptable? Because it was perfect? No! It was acceptable and well-pleasing because these people were trusting in Christ. It had been made acceptable in the beloved. There's an interesting verse in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, which says that we, every one of us as Christians, all of us are a holy priesthood who offer, are to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And so we're to do the very best we can in offering up spiritual sacrifice. But Peter goes on to say that the only way any of our spiritual sacrifices can ever be acceptable to God is when we bring them to and through Jesus Christ. It's because of our union with Jesus Christ that God accepts and approves and even uses our imperfect services. Now, you've probably all heard the statement, if a thing is worth doing well... If a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing well. And there's a certain sense in which that's true. We ought to want to do our very best for the Lord. We ought to do things heartily as unto the Lord. None of this lukewarm and flippant and light way of service. Give it all you've got. He deserves it. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And we ought to do that. But... In spite of how much we try, our services are still imperfect. And so I want to change that statement a little bit, which says, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing well. I want to change it to say, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing even if we don't do it well. Some people say, well, I can't pray well, so I won't pray. 
Or I can't witness well, so what's the use of me trying? Or I can't sing well, so I won't participate in congregational singing. I can't write well, so I won't write to missionaries or I won't write notes of encouragement to anybody because I can't spell well and, you know, I don't have good grammar and all that. Some people say, I can't cook well, so I won't be hospitable. I mean, I wouldn't want people to come here. I can't feed them like somebody else can. Or I can't get out of my Bible study what I ought to get out of my Bible study. I mean, I don't understand many things, so why even do it? Or I can't give what somebody else gives, so I'm not going to give. Oh, my friends, God accepts because of Jesus Christ if we're doing it from the heart. If we're doing it because we love him, he accepts our imperfect services. My friends, never use your deficiencies as an excuse for not serving. You ought to try to do the best you can, try to improve. But never use your deficiencies as an excuse. Remember, you're an adopted child of God. And because that's true, you can count on it that your heavenly father will accept your imperfect services. Your heavenly father will be pleased with your spiritual sacrifices because of the past and present work of Christ on your behalf. And that's true because You are, if you're a true Christian, uh, an adopted child of God. Because you're an adopted child of God, you can be absolutely convinced that he's going to provide for you as you accept and fulfill your responsibilities. Don't worry about tomorrow. Just do what you can. Be busy. Accept responsibilities. And God will take care of you. He's promised, seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness, and he'll add all these other things unto you. Because you're an adopted child of God, God will protect you. Don't worry about the terrorists. I mean, it's fine for us to do everything we can to protect ourselves, and we ought to do that. I'm not in any way uh, running that down. But at the same time, we have somebody to protect us that far exceeds what our government, what the FBI or anybody else can do. And I'm not, I say thank God for the FBI and for our government that's working on these things. But we have an assurance that our God will protect us as well and never allow anything to happen to us that will not ultimately be for our good and for his glory. And the same thing is true with our imperfect services. Now, from all of this, I think you can see Why the Apostle Paul started out by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can't you hear him shouting it? I mean, his pen is shouting it. Blessed be the God and Father. He's excited about this. He gives us many reasons in the book of Ephesians why we should bless God. But one of the main reasons in my mind why we should bless God is because of this wonderful truth. And we've been adopted into the family of God. Personally, I became an adopted son of God, child of God in November of 1951. God brought me to himself, caused me to understand my sin, caused me to be convicted of my sin. He turned my eyes, he took the darkness away from me and I saw glory in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And I came to Jesus Christ, and I've never been the same since. He turned me around. And since that time, I've been enjoying the benefits of being an adopted child of God. I've been enjoying the fact that God has taken care of me for these 68 years and my wife and my family. I've been rejoicing in the fact that I have living within me the spirit of adoption. That God has provided for us, protected us, accepted my imperfect service, heard my prayers, disciplined me, and he's done what's best for me. Now I wonder, my friends, what about you? Do you know for sure that you're a part of the family of God? Was there a time in your life when you did what John 1.12 says we must do to become sons of God? It says, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the, the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. Was there a time when you reached out and you embraced Jesus Christ, you yielded to him, submitted to him, committed your life to him, trusted in him alone? Was there a time in your life when you became aware of the fact that you were not a part of the family of God, that you were a child of the devil, a child of disobedience, a child of wrath? Was there a time when you came to the realization you were estranged from God, that you were headed for hell, that the wrath of God was on you, and unless God came to you in mercy, you were lost forever? Was there a time in your life when you turned to Christ and you said, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please accept me, not because I'm worthy or I deserve it, but because I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. And my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I'm leaning wholly on Jesus' name. Was there a time in your life when you did that? Well, if not, I want to encourage you to do that today. I want to encourage you to do what I did in November of 1951. I want to encourage you to do what many others in this meeting have done at some point in their lives. And if you do, I want to be among those who welcome you into the family of God. Oh, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we are. I haven't met many of you, but even if I haven't met you, if you're a Christian, my friend, you're my brother. And you're my sister, and I am too. I'm yours. We've got a big family. Let's love each other. Let's appreciate one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's admonish one another. Let's rebuke one another. Let's support one another. Let's help one another as family members should. And that'll be pleasing to our Heavenly Father because he wants his children to love one another and to be committed not only to him, but to each other. But if you're here this morning and you have already received Christ and believed in his name, I want to encourage you to reflect on the blessings that are yours because you're adopted. I encourage you to meditate on what we've talked about today to allow these blessings to motivate you to be more thankful and joyful. How can anybody who really believes this not be thankful? How can anybody who really understands and believes this not be a joyful person? This is such practical stuff when it grabs hold of you. How can you be fearful when you've got a heavenly father who's going to protect you 
And how can you not devote yourself to ministry when you know even though you don't do it perfectly because of Jesus Christ, your Father will accept and bless and use your services for him. May God bless the truth that we've talked about today to your hearts. And may he bring you and me to the place where we'll be as excited about this matter of adoption as the Apostle Paul was. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are today for the fact that you have given us your word. We walk in darkness. We really don't understand, but you've lavished upon us wisdom and insight. You've made known to us the mystery of your will. You've made us aware of the fact that you chose us in Christ Jesus. You've made us aware of the fact that we can be redeemed through the blood of Christ. We can be forgiven, that we can be accepted in the beloved, that we can have wisdom and insight. You've made us aware of the fact that we have an inheritance if we're Christians and that we're sealed by that Holy Spirit of promise. And you've also made us aware, thank God, Lord, that you have adopted us into your family, that we are sons. And as John said, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Could there be, Lord, any greater privilege, any higher honor that you could dis- you could bestow on anyone and the honor of being known as a son of God and a brother of Jesus Christ. This overwhelms us, Lord, and we bow before you to say thank you, God, for being so gracious. Help us to be more faithful. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for our groaning and moaning. Forgive us for our fears. Forgive us for our doubts. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for our lack of perseverance. Oh, God, stir us up to act like the sons of God that we really are, that others might see the greatness of our Father and want to know the same God that we know. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, my brothers and sisters, um, we... uh, I certainly want to thank you for coming and giving me the privilege of uh, reminding myself of these great truths. I just love to think about God's word, to preach God's word, and I would uh, encourage you to go away letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you so that in all wisdom you might teach and counsel one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. May God bless you as you go out to live for him. Thank you. You are dismissed.